The title of the series is called Living and Looking, and it is Living for Christ, Looking for His Return, because those are the two themes that we find in 1 Thessalonians. The first part, first three chapters, is an emphasis on living for Christ, uh, and then the last two chapters, 4 and 5, Paul gets into some of the most key passages of the New Testament that speak on some details concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting because uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is fundamental to our Christian faith, isn't just there for speculative, uh, speculative curiosity, but Paul connects the second coming with living for Christ as a motivator, as an anticipating, uh, let me say that again, anticipating the second coming and how that should affect how I live right now. And so we'll get to that in coming weeks. But just to see how the importance of the second coming is, in each of these five chapters, they all end with some reference to the second coming of Christ. So it's obvious that that's a key theme in the Apostle Paul in communicating this letter to the Thessalonians. Now, last week we spent more time on introduction, so the sermon is online, and I encourage you, if you want to follow that, go back online, you can listen to the introduction. But just as a quick reminder... The church at Thessalonica was founded, and that's, re that's recorded in Acts chapter 17. In the beginning part of Acts chapter 17, it was as Paul was traveling, a second missionary journey where he's traveling and planting churches or visiting churches that had been started. He came to the city of Thessalonica and stayed there maybe a month, and a church arose by God's, by God's grace. And as a result of this church growing and people coming to Christ, it aroused the jealousy of some of the people in the community, and they drove him out. I don't mean drove him out in a limousine. I mean, they hired a mob, and uh, under threat of his life, uh, he had to leave. And eventually, Paul, if you know Acts chapter 17, he wound up in the city of Athens in Greece, but all of that uh, in this time was under the Roman empire. And so he's in Athens, and when his Silas and some of Timothy arrive with him in Athens, he is so desirous to find out what the status is of these believers in Thessalonica that he sends Timothy back there to check on him. He can't go back, but he can send Timothy back to check on them and find out their progress. And eventually, after Athens, Paul arrives in the city of Corinth. You've heard of the book of Corinthians. So he was in Corinth, and it was while he was in Corinth that Timothy caught up with him coming back from Thessalonica and told Paul that the Christian church, the believers in Thessalonica were doing well, that their testimony was sound, and they were sharing the gospel, and it was a testimony to the Holy Spirit of what God was doing in this young church. And it excited Paul, and he wanted to encourage them, so Paul took scroll and pen and wrote the letter that we call 1 Thessalonians. So that's an abbreviated uh, introduction, and you can listen to a little more detail if you so desire. But notice how 1 Thessalonians begins in the first three verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, those are the folks that are with him when he's writing this letter, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is excited, and, and you can imagine, and, and, and one of the things that was happening in Thessalonica 
in the midst of this church that was growing, serving Christ, is they were facing a lot of persecution. Really, there is hardly any example in the New Testament where a church did not face the pressure of persecution. We kind of think it's a novelty if somebody, if we feel like our American church is facing persecution, but that was the norm in the New Testament. That was normative in the New Testament. And so imagine getting this letter from the Apostle Paul, the big man himself, and he tells them how he has been mindful of them and mentioning, uh, constantly praying for them. And one of the things that we began as we transitioned in looking at chapter 1 last week was noting that in chapter 1, as Paul is writing to this church, one of the hallmarks of the Thessalonican church is that this was a church that was a, that was a model, so to speak, of a church that was converted to Christ. Now, you may think, isn't every church converted to Christ? Well, not necessarily. This was a church that, not because of their organization or their doctrinal statement or their creed or, or something like that, but their people, which is the church, they exhibited genuine conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul just speaks about in chapter 1, and we introduced it a little bit last week. They were converted. Uh, conversion, when a person is converted to Christ, it changes their entire direction. They are not the same. Uh, I would assume most of you, I hope most of you, I can't speak for every one of you, I don't know your hearts and know your background and your testimony, but your conversion was a to Jesus Christ caused a change in how you lived your life, who you married, where you worked maybe, where you went to school. It was a change in your life. Conversion affected this church, and it showed throughout chapter 1. In these first 10 verses, or in the 10 verses of chapter 1, which we just began last week, we understand a little bit by what Paul wrote to remind us of what it is to be a Christian. A Christian is not joining a particular church. A Christian is not belonging to a certain country that has Christian values. A Christian fundamentally is defined as someone who is converted to Christ. They are now a follower of Christ. They were once not a follower of Jesus. Now they are a follower of Christ. And so 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter 1, gives us biblical insight, truth, that helps us to evaluate and answer those questions as not only as what a biblical Christian looks like, but what is a biblical church look like? A church in the New Testament is composed of people who are converted, followers of Jesus. That is what composes the church, and that is evidence here in chapter 1. And so salvation, conversion, we understand that it is a sovereign work of grace. When we talk about sovereign, that speaks of the rulership of God, that God alone is in charge of the world and universe that he created. He is the sovereign one, and it's because of his pleasure, that his grace, that he has given us and extended salvation freely. Free grace, we, we say. And so we see those things, those traits exhibited in chapter 1. And last week, we just got to the first point, and to save time, we just stayed there, but we're going to finish up today. But last week, uh, we, we looked at the first of three observations in chapter 1, and saw that their conversion was purposed by God's sovereign grace. We looked at that last week, and I encourage you to go online and catch up on that. And we basically looked at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 speaks of the divine side of salvation. Paul says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. And we dug down in what that means about being chosen by God. That's the doctrine of election. It's all throughout Scripture. And we spoke a lot about that. We won't uh, revisit that today. But that verse uh, spoke of 
the divine God initiative that our salvation, we love Him, 1 John 4.19, we love Him because He first loved me, us. I love God because He took the initiative. That's, what, that's in an overly simplistic way when it speaks about that we are chosen. I don't necessarily, I know the truth, and where we get hung up, we talked about, is getting hung up in all the components of how that works. And we certainly make speculative understandings, and Scripture enlightens us here and there. But fundamentally, it means that if God had not chosen me, me and my sinful self would have never chosen God first. Thank you, Teresa. All right, that was a good, all right. Let me say that again. If God had not chosen me first, I would have never chosen him. If God had not taken the initiative to save me, then I would have gone my wayward way apart from God. And that's the testimony, I believe, of every believer. Whether you understand all the dimensions or not, we are chosen by God. But there's a human side in verse 5 where Paul said, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. It isn't just God's decree, but it's God activating and regenerating believers with full conviction. And so there is a conviction, there is a response to the gospel. And again, we talked about that in detail last week. So secondly, by looking at the purpose of of God's sovereign grace, we're going to look at the second observation in chapter 1 this morning and looking at the proof of God's sovereign grace. The proof of God's sovereign grace. And this speaks to the evidence of conversion. Remember, we're talking about conversion, God's sovereign act of conversion. This was a converted church. Paul said in verse 4, don't go back and look, I mean, don't worry about the screen. But he said in verse 4, he said, we know, we know. Uh, Let me find it in my notes. He said, verse 4, for we know, brothers, that he has chosen you. How did Paul know? Did he get a, a, a glimpse into the mind of God? Did he, did he get a glimpse in what Psalm 139 says about in your books, in your book, all my days are written before they ever were? Did he somehow have that information? I don't think that's what he's saying here. What he's saying is that the proof is demonstrated that you're chosen by God because it is evidenced in your life. You evidence the grace of God. You evidence the graces of the Holy Spirit, that you have evidence that you have been converted or born again. And they, they all these observations in, these, uh, in verses 6 through 8 uh, revolve around a response and how they responded to the Word of God. You see, the test or evidence of a believer's conversion is how have they responded? How have they responded to the Word of God? Notice with me verse 6. It says that they received the Word, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the Word. One of the evidences. Notice that it says, in much affliction. As I said, they were under persecution. They, just as Paul faced attack, well, so this church faced pressure and much affliction. The word means literally to be pressed to the limit. We know that you receive the word even though you are pressed to the limit. You remember your, maybe your mama said, you are on my last nerve? All right, well, she was being pressed to the limit, all right? Well, this church, and notice that the ESV says they received. If you have the NIV, it means they welcomed. 
And it has the idea they receive the word, they welcome the word, evidence of conversion, evidence of their God-initiating, God-initiated choosing of them unto salvation. They welcome the word, and that word means to op- is like opening your home and heart to another person. They welcomed it. They joyfully received the word of God. It means that the Thessalonian church was a converted church, and their conversion was evidence in how they received the word with joy, and they could not be stopped. No pressure, no persecution, no economic hardship was going to change the work that God has done in their life. They received it with joy. And you know, I think those of you who have traveled overseas and have been in other countries, I think that in most cases when you travel, at least I have been and and had opportunity to, to travel several places and stay, I'm always struck by the joy of salvation in people's lives who have so little compared to what I have. Even in, the, uh, re- even in the Word of God, even in the resources as a Christian, that how they have so little, they are so limited, and yet in spite of the economic hardship, in spite of perhaps living in, in settings or countries or even families, they have a joy of receiving the Word. Their conversion means, and Paul, remember, he had sent Timothy there to check on him. Timothy came back with a good report that what Paul would write to the Philippians in, verse, in Philippians 1.6, that the good work that God has begun in you, he will complete it. Well, the good work was evidence that the gospel they received, they were evidencing it in a continuation, in a perseverance perseverance of the saints. They were persevering and continuing, even though the going got rough, they were continuing to persevere in their walk with Christ. You know that oftentimes you'll read reports and of evangelistic uh, crusades, and certainly there have been historic crusades. Billy Graham, one of my heroes, you know, one of the great, really the greatest evangelists uh, of, of, of church history. And people would speak about these massive amounts of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think where we get confused is we equate walking an aisle, praying a prayer with conversion. That may be something God uses, but that doesn't necessarily mean that genuine conversion has taken place in that person's life. What, what is the evidence, what is the proof, if you would, is whether that when they leave the altar, they leave the crusade, has their life been changed? It doesn't mean like you or me, it doesn't mean everything happened overnight, but is the trajectory of their life that was going one way changed now because they heard the voice of a new master? That is where we need to pay attention to. Not, I mean, I, I give God praise in those numbers and pray that some of them were genuinely converted. But my goodness, if we take everybody in history that has attended a, a Billy Graham or Franklin Graham crusade that was genuinely converted, thousands upon thousands, my goodness, do you think our nation would be in the state of chaos it is today? I don't think so. So not only is this evidence in how they received the word, but in verse 7 we see that it was, a, that it was living the word. It wasn't just an intellectual acceptance of the creeds of Christianity and the theological doctrines of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 7. It was a word that was lived out. Verse 7, they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Thessalonica, as we mentioned in the first week, was a very large, prosperous city, and it was a capital of the Macedonian province. Today, Thessalonica, called Thessaloniki 
Uh, Thessalonica was kind of located in the northeast part of Greece. If you were to look there on a map, it's still the city is still there today, and it is the second largest city in Greece today. But Mass or, or rather Thessalonica was a major port city, and just like major hub cities, be it like Miami, uh, Los Angeles, New York, uh, those are cities that whatever comes there eventually is going to spread out to the rest of the country. And so Paul is saying that the gospel has become an example. If you have the NIV, you may see the word, they became a model. They became a model. Model in the Greek, which was the New Testament original, uh, what it was written in, is the Greek word tupos, which literally means an impression that is left by a piece of metal when pressed into clay. You know the word. We use the word type, T-Y-P-E. When you type on a typewriter, does anybody even know what a typewriter is? Let me, let's say, when you put it in the computer and it comes out on the laser printer, it shows you. But, but my imagery was the impression of that little mechanism impressing itself on the paper and making a mark. You know, you, you, you hit the keystroke and it hits the mark. It makes an impression. Paul is saying you became a model. You left an impression. You, you left an indelible mark that demonstrates that the profession of faith that you made was real and went from here to here. You with me? And I believe that's one of the key secrets that often is missing from evangelism. We've equated evangelism to memorizing an outline like we're selling vacuum cleaners. Hello? Now, don't get me wrong. You need to understand some content if you're talking to somebody. Knowing some Bible is always helpful, all right? But you know what? People, it is amazing that the best way, I believe, to show others your faith in Christ is to be an example in your own personal life. That's what he's saying here. You modeled, you became an example to all of the people living in your area. And so if that is a model of how to attract people, the opposite is true as well, isn't it? If you are a hypocrite, if you're a phony, do you think that's going to attract anybody? That's why when we hear another story on television or read some article in the internet about some pastor or some church or some situation that has fallen in hypocrisy, it just grieves us, doesn't it? It should grieve us. Because again, people are mocking and saying, see, I told you all those people are a bunch of phonies. They're just in it for the money or whatever it is. Well, Paul says you became a model. You, you made a impression on all believers and all people. So the proof of God's sovereign grace in their life is that they received the word, they're living out the word, but also thirdly in verse 8, they're speaking the word. They're speaking the word. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, that's that surrounding geographical region, region where Thessalonica, the city, is located. But notice, he says, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere from this little church. Paul is saying your faith in God has gone everywhere, so Paul is saying so we don't need to say anything. I don't need to do anything. You just keep doing what you're doing, living it out, speaking it out, because you're doing such a great work. That word sounded forth in the uh, ESV, which is on the screen and maybe in your Bible. In the NIV, it says your faith rang out, rang out. That's a term that in the la original language was an orchestra term, and it means to strike a symbol, all right? So, Brian, that should be exciting to you. Um, it means to strike a symbol. So as the Thessalonian believers lived for Christ, shared Christ, their message, listen to me, their message 
reverberated throughout all beyond them. And Paul says, has gone forth everywhere. You see the evidence of conversion. Don't miss this. The evidence of conversion in these verses is that they receive God's word daily. You see, a person who claims to be a Christian, who says that they've been converted by Christ, but has no interest or desire for the word of God, I'll be honest with you, I question whether that's genuine. Now, I am in no way saying they've got to understand all the theological dimensions and understand all the symbolism of the horses and book of Revelation and have an end time, be able to draw an end times chart from memory. I'm not saying any of that, but if your basic desire does, because when you open the word and receive the word, this is how you get to know God. People run around, want to hear of the voice of God. Here's a secret. Read the word out loud. Okay, there you go, right? You want to hear the voice of God? Read the Bible out loud. This is God's purpose for our life. And if there's not a desire to, to just at some point learn more about the God who saved you, maybe that God hasn't saved you. You've had an experience of religion. You like the church, you know, we keep it nice and cold. Um, and, uh, you know, you like this and you like that. But you've not had an encounter with Jesus. Everyone in the New Testament who had an encounter with Jesus was never the same. Was never the same. They received God's word, but notice they lived it on a daily basis. And as they lived it, the message of the gospel reverberated in every direction. And people began to take notice. So their conversion was purposed by God's sovereign grace. Their conversion demonstrated proof of God's sovereign grace. But the third observation in chapter 1 is that their conversion is a portrait of God's sovereign grace. Is a portrait of God's sovereign grace. We talk, and you know the word sanctification means to set apart. We talk about holy, H-O-L-Y. The word speaks of that which is set apart, something that is holy, something that is sanctified. Sanctification is the aspect of the Christian who has been converted, born again. Sanctification is the progressive work. They've been saved by Christ. Sanctification isn't isn't getting re-saved, but sanctification is the outworking of the gospel in the believer's life. We call that sanctification. I'm growing and being set apart in my daily life and in my walk more unto Christ. And so here in this section, we see that there's salvation, the evidence, also evidence in the work of sanctification uh, in their life. And so the passage contains one final truth that's related to their conversion, genuine conversion in verses 9 through 10 of how did this happen. There's three tenses of the Christian life, and we've said this many times. There's a past, present, and future. Sometimes uh, we'll say it this way. I have been saved, I am being saved, and ultimately I will be saved. That's kind of the three aspects of the Christian life. And so notice with me in verse 9, it is noted as part of this portrait. A portrait is like a, is a picture. We see that this conversion, we see it speaks of the past. Verse 9. For they themselves, these people that are giving testimony to your faith in Macedonia and Achaia, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And notice this. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The past, they did what? They turned to God. They turned to God from something, from idols. In the case of these people in Thessalonica, this turning from idols was really true. It isn't that, like us, idolatry is a, is a heart concept, but this is a pagan culture. Do you remember when Paul uh, traveled to Athens there in Acts 17? 
and he's waiting for his companions to catch up with him, and he went around the city, and he spoke to those philosophers at Mars Hill or the Oropagus, and he said, I see that your, 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 your city is, and literally he's saying, I see that your city, that you're smothered in idols. They were pagans. They literally had statues and edifices that that they attributed some type of religious adoration to. And many of these religious statues and, and aspects of the religion was also connected to sexual deviancy and perversion. They were literally turning from God, returning to God from idols, literally. Notice how it happened, verse 9. It says they turned to God. Conversion again. This is what conversion means, what it's all about. The Bible uses the word repentance. To repent. That describes this act. The word, again, I'm not trying to uh, impress you with my Greek because I got a D plus in Greek in school. So don't be impressed. But I read people who are really good at Greek. And the Greek word here is metanoia, where we get the word, or where the word is translated, repent. And repentance speaks about a change of mind. Conversion, changing. Repentance means fundamentally to change your mind about something, to change the way you think about something. You've been thinking one way, but now you think an opposite way. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose um, a man wants to learn to parachute. And I thought of Sean here. If you want to see videos, I don't know if they're still around, but Sean, what was that about? Man, almost eight years ago when Chad and those guys were here, uh, Sean jumped out of an airplane, thankfully with a parachute, and lived to tell the tale. But let's say that you wanted to uh, parachute and you went to parachute school to learn how to rig up the gear and uh, make sure you pulled the ripcord or how you did it. And finally the day came when you're with a group of people and you're going up in that plane, and, and you're, you're flying up there, and you are scared to death. You're scared to death even contemplating it. And uh, the moment comes when that door is open, and the moment of test comes when you are to jump. And so the man goes to the door of the airplane, looks down at 2,500 feet to the, to the ground, and all of a sudden the legs get wobbly. He's about to throw up. And somebody behind him is kind of nudging him to push him out of the airplane. And at the last second, the man says, no, I'm not going to do it. And they're saying, go ahead, you can do it, you can do it. He says, I've changed my mind, I'm not going to jump. You know what he did? He repented right then and there. He changed his mind. He refused to go any further. When you repent, you're saying that I repent I, because of the work of grace. I'm no longer following my path. I'm no longer following my idols of the heart, but I'm following now after Jesus Christ. It changes. Now, don't misunderstand me. And some have misunderstood this in thinking that repentance is solely an intellectual thing, a change of mind. It is a change of mind, but it's a change of mind that affects your will and your affections. You've changed your mind about it, okay? Just like the man in the airplane. He changed his mind, and his will pulled himself back and did not jump. Verse 9, it says how the, the, that they turn to God from something. Your conversion means turning from your idols. We don't have marble and stone and wood idols anymore. Ours are a little more sophisticated. But, but Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You will either love one or, what, hate the other. You can't have your idols of the heart and have God. You can't have both. So the Thessalonians, this was literally true, uh, but to us, it's a little more nuanced as far as when we talk about idolatry. John Calvin, in a famous statement, said that the human heart, listen to me, the human heart is an idol 
factory. Speaking about the depravity of the human heart is an idol factory, always in the imaginations of a heart that is separated from God until God does the regenerating work to awaken dead people to their, to their sin, draw them to faith in Christ, then until that happens, the heart is manufacturing gross imaginations and things that are alternatives to the true and living God. You say, what? Me? An idolater? I'm not an idolater. We have lots of idols today, don't we? We have idols in our culture. We worship wealth and sex. and You see, an idol is anything, anything in that we look to as an ultimate source to gain value, to gain worth. And whatever is an idol in our life will channel our resources, our time, our talent, and treasure to whatever that is that becomes that source. And, and you know, here's the, here's the crazy thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, things that are just, we might would think, are bad stuff. Oftentimes, things that are good could be our job, a career, our education, be lots of things that because we have a misapplication towards that which is a blessing of God, now it becomes something that is turning us from God. I'll give you an example. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy is the, the children of Israel are about to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy is Moses' final message to them, and he lays it out. And really, if you look at it, he, he's laying out the law of God. And in chapter 8, he says, remember not to forget God. When you come into this land of abundance that God is prepared for you, when you come into this land of abundance, the land of milk and honey, remember? He says, remember not to forget the one that got you there. And he warns them. That when you come into that land, and instead of struggling and fighting for every morsel of, of, of manna, <laughs> you come into this land of great abundance, and you begin to think, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. And because of God's blessings, your heart begins to be changed. Instead of giving thanks to the one who has blessed you, now all of a sudden you're holding on to these things as that which you feel that you've earned and deserve and need for your very existence. God wants us to turn from our idols. And that's not just a one-time thing, but that's when you have repented. And I challenge you, have you repented if you claim to be converted? Have you repented? It is a change of mind that leads to a change of thinking. And a change of thinking that leads to a change of attitude. And a change of attitude that leads to a change of feeling. And a change of feeling that leads to a change of values. And it leads to a change in the way that I lead my life. You see, the portrait here is that they've turned the past from, to, they've turned from idols of the past to serve the living God. And that's the second thing we see in verse 9. Is not just the past, they've turned to God from idols, but the present... Paul commends them, they've turned to serve the living and true God. If biblical conversion fundamentally involves a change, if you will, of gods, little, little gods for the true eternal almighty God, you see it involves this, where once you served sin and self, now your heart and affections are turned to serve the true and living God. Where once you bowed down to the idols of pleasure and power and material gain and worldly approval, now you bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where once you served the dead gods of this world, now you serve the living and only God. Where once you followed falsehood and lies, 
Now you serve truth by serving the true and only God. Doesn't that sum up what it means to be converted, to be a follower of Jesus? Our life belongs to Him. We're here to serve God. We're not here, as John Piper says, to serve out of some debtor's guilt. It's not a debtor's serving, but it's a serving of the one who has done so much, my natural affections now want to only do that which please him. As Bob Dylan saying, you got to serve somebody. Who are you serving? Are you serving self or serving God? That's an evidence of genuine conversion. And Paul noted the past, they turned from idols. They're serving presently the true God, the living God. But he also points them and notes how their eyes are on the future. That's part of our title of this series. We're living and looking. Verse 10, last verse of chapter 1. Let me read those three verses together. For they themselves report concerning us, verse 9, the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and verse 10, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And those thoughts there in that verse are going to be important when we uh, examine more closely chapter 4 and 5. They're waiting. So the trajectory of their conversion is they've turned from sin, they're living for God, but they're anticipating, they're looking, believing in Jesus' second coming. That's a huge part. And I'm afraid that Christians, we've become so uh, confused concerning the second coming and so many novelties where our theology has been derived from fictional novels than Scripture. And we want to say, let's examine Scripture when we come to chapters 4 and 5. But here's the future tense of the Christian life. We turn, we serve, and we wait. We're waiting. They were waiting. We're waiting. How much longer do we have to wait? Every generation, every generation had a sense that this is it. This is it. I've watched enough YouTube videos to know this is it. Maybe it is. Maybe it didn't. Maybe there's a hundred generations ahead. You say, oh, it couldn't be that. If you ask them, they'd say, oh, no, this thing's going to get wrapped up in the way things are going. You see, the disciples, remember in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples were conversing with the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected? And of all the things they could have talked about, what was the one thing they wanted to ask him? Is it now, at this time, you're going to establish your kingdom? And Jesus said, it is not for you to know the day or the hour. It's not for you to know the time. you got a job to do. Go into all the world, what he said in the Great Commission, and preach the gospel. You need to wait, he told them there in Acts 1, for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit because the job you are called to do and must do as my followers, you cannot do in your own strength. You see, I'm, I'm afraid sometimes we tend to think that in the church because of our prosperity and our knowledge and our truth that we feel like we can do the Christian life without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make you into a weirdo, all right? It just means that I'm dependent on the Spirit of God that has been given to me. Jesus said it is better that I go back to the Father because it's only then that I can send the Holy Spirit. It's better. Why? Because Jesus says you've had me with you, but when the Holy Spirit comes, you will have me where? In you. And that happens when the believer professes and confesses and receives the Lord Jesus Christ because you can't do that without the Holy Spirit. You don't have to tarry and wait as some folks have taught. And my 
background, I've taught, you know, around people and said, I've been tearing and waiting and believing for the filling of the Holy Spirit for 30 years. You don't need to do that. You receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive the Holy Spirit. Does that mean I receive everything? No. Paul said in Galatians to keep being filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. That's a daily process. I want more of God. Hopefully, I've and you have got more of God than the first time you believed. I hope that's true. I hope that the sanctifying work of the continual regenerating and baptism the Holy Spirit that's continuing your life, I hope that's continuing every day in your life to make you more like Jesus. I like that Paul just weaves the second coming all through talking about living for Jesus. You remember when you were a kid and the teacher would step out of the classroom and say, I need to go down the hall. You all stay in your seats. Don't talk. How'd that work out? But here's the thing. When you heard the footsteps coming down the hall, what did you do? You got your act together and got back in your seat. My friends, from this generation until now, and who knows beyond, we can hear the footsteps coming down the hall. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus is coming back. Don't get lost in the weeds with charts and novelties and dragons that are F-16s and all the nonsense that is... We don't know. We don't know. But you know what? Scripture tells us a lot we can know. Be dogmatic about what the Bible teaches, not what some prophetic expert speculates may be interesting and fun to watch. And the novels may be fun, but you know what? Christians get so confused by that. We don't want to do that. We're going to bring the definitive, once and for all answer about when Jesus is returning. No, we're not going to do that. I'll tell you that right now. We're just going to limit ourselves to what Scripture says and what it doesn't say. But I love that they were anticipating. And Jesus, don't miss this. This will be a key part of when we get into chapter 4 and 5, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, one of the things you need to understand is that Christians will be delivered from the wrath to come. You see, the wrath, the Christian, we have already received the wrath of God. You say, how did we do that? The wrath of God was poured out on Christ on our behalf. God does not need to bring wrath upon believers. And Jesus, what does it say? Who delivers us from the wrath to come. When the second coming and a component of that, God's wrath is poured out, believers will be spared from that wrath. So what is this, what is this passage telling us? Let me summarize chapter 1 real quickly with four quick statements. They'll be on the screen. Here's some takeaways. Conversion is an act of God that begins in eternity with God's choice of me. Secondly, conversion ushers in a radically changed life which is built upon receiving, living, and speaking the Word of God. Thirdly, conversion means a radical turning in my life from every idol, everything that hinders me, let me say it that way, from following the true and living God. Conversion, your conversion will be evidence. And it's not just a turning one time, but it is daily turning. Listen, I daily have to turn my head away from sinful thoughts, sinful ideas coming through the computer, coming through the television. And some of you hook your children up 
to iPads and phones and hook them up to a cesspool without any safeguards whatsoever. I don't get that. I don't get that. Quit being so naive. Take charge of what your kids are pouring or are getting poured into their brains and their minds. Because listen, this culture literally is hell-bent on converting somebody, and that's converting your kids. Take responsibility of your kids. Take responsibility of your grandkids. That's free. That's free. You won't be charged for that. And the fourth is conversion leads to a life of service to God. Serving God, not as a debtor. Not we're just, well, we got to pay Jesus back by serving Him. No, we serve Him because of what He's done for us. And we're patiently anticipating and waiting for His coming. Sherry, why don't you come? And so I ask you this morning, just, are you converted? Are you converted? Is that the testimony of your life? Are you converted? You say, well, how can I be converted? It's really simple. The Bible makes it simple. You must transfer your trust away from yourself and place your trust wholly and solely and fully upon Jesus Christ. You must turn from the idolatry of your self-love of yourself Self-worship, good works, every heart idol that makes you think that you're a good guy, a good gal to seeing the reality of yourself in light of the Lord Jesus Christ. You turn from self and turn to God and you wholly depend on Jesus. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is seeking sand. See, a converted person sings that. Because they know that everything else other than Christ is sinking sand. Are you converted? This was a converted church. This was a converted church. They understood that salvation, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, is in personal faith, trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's not in a church. It's not in an institution. It's not in an organization. It's not being baptized as an infant or as an adult. It's not leading a good moral life. It's not being a good husband, a wife, a parent. Listen, all those things are commendable. But they're no value before the throne of God. There's only one who has value, and that's Christ. Are you in Christ if God the Father were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? There's only one answer. Because Jesus paid it all.